The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I can't remember if I shared this story with you before, but it's one of my favorite stories. It's a story of a seasoned minister. And uh, one day he was poking around his house looking for something, and he was looking in his wife's closet, and he found a mysterious wooden box. A mysterious wooden box that he's never seen before. And so he opened it up, and inside he found eight eggs and 53 $1 bills. He's a little bit dismayed that his wife was keeping this from him and was puzzled at, at what it might mean. And so his wife finally came home and he said, honey, I have found this box in your closet. What is it? Why have you been hiding it from me? And sheepishly, she said, well, to be honest... Every time you preach a bad sermon, I put an egg in this box. And he's thinking, you know, I've been preaching for 30 years, only eight eggs. That's not such a bad career. And then he says, well, what are the 53 $1 bills for? And she said, well, every time I had a dozen eggs, I sold them to the neighbor for a dollar. My wife should be driving a Lexus by now. Sorry. Anyways, um. This Thursday, I looked it up because it's interesting. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about ministry and what it means to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four years ago from this Thursday is the anniversary of when I was ordained. And um, as I look back over those past four years, I I scratch my head and I think, does God really know what he's doing? You know, there have been some really rotten eggs uh, in that box for me. You know, there have been times where I have done really bonehead things. Like one time I accidentally charged $700 to the church credit card at Walmart. Thankfully, we have checks and balances and and I was able to pay that back. And people to say, why is there $700 on the credit card for Walmart? You know, I've also thought things and done things that I'm ashamed of. I have preached many, many sermons, some better than others. Some egg-worthy, right? Matter of fact, a few months ago, I had a woman tell me, and she knows who she is, I won't point her out, but she said, Dan, I was listening to your sermon online, and I fell asleep. And I thought, you know what? Thank you for not keeping that encouragement to yourself, because I so needed to hear that, and we we laughed about it. But, but, you know, when I listen to my sermons, many times I, I don't fall asleep. I cringe because I hear how I missay words and and how, you know, I missed points that I wanted to put in there, or how I said something that I wish I didn't say. And so ministry is kind of this thing where you just show up, and you do what God has called you to do, and then you say, God, I trust you with the results. This week and next week, we're going to be looking at the topic of ministry. If you would, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. It's page 983 in the Red Bible. It's page 1456 in the Children's Bible. And we'll be talking about ministering the mystery of the gospel. And we'll be answering some very big questions. Questions like, who is called to ministry? What should you expect in ministry? What is the content of ministry? What is the goal of ministry? Those are the questions that we're going to look at and discuss. And Lord willing, through God's word, answer today. So Colossians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 24. Paul says this. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. 
And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to this passage, we come knowing that we need your teaching, your warning. We need your wisdom. All your scripture is from you, God. And all of it is useful to us, God. And so, Lord, pray that we would take what is said here and apply it to our lives. May it change who we are as we leave this place. May it change the way we go to work tomorrow. May it change the way we parent our children. May it change the way we love our parents. May it change us, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have a lot to cover today, so we're just going to jump right in. First, I want to start by talking about the commission for ministry. Who is called to ministry? Just prior to the passage that we read in verse 23, Paul identifies himself. He says in verse 23, the second half, he says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, which we'll unpack a little bit more later. That you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which, talking about the gospel, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so Paul identifies himself as a minister. He does so again in verse 25. He says, of which, talking about the gospel, again, I became a minister. Now the question is, what makes Paul a minister? Why is Paul a minister? How did he become a minister? Well, if you continue on in verse 25, he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship. The NIV translates it commission, which is interesting. We'll get back to that. According to the stewardship from God, That was given to me for you. And so Paul became a minister of the gospel, not by his own inclination, not by the will of men, but by the will of God. You know, it's interesting, this term here that's used for minister is the term diakonos, which is used for the word deacon. And literally, it means servant or table waiter. And so Paul has given stewardship of this rich food of the gospel to disseminate liberally to people that they might hear and know the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to look a little bit at Paul's commission, but I don't want to spend too much time on it. You may remember the first sermon in the book of Colossians. We spent time on just verses 1 and 2. And Paul starts this letter saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he goes on to identify Timothy, not as an apostle, but as a brother. And the Colossians as saints and children of God. But he calls himself an apostle. And at that time, and you can go back and look at, listen to that sermon. Don't fall asleep, but you can go back and listen to that sermon. And we looked at Galatians chapter 1 and 2, and Paul defends his apostleship, showing that Jesus Christ himself revealed the gospel to Paul and the commission to, to go and preach it. 
And Paul went and preached the gospel for over a decade. He came back to the apostles, and they too certified that Paul was an apostle sent out by God. And so Paul was commissioned in a very uh, extravagant way. But the question I want to ask is, what about you and what about me? Are we commissioned for ministry? And the answer is yes. Not in the way that Paul is, but yes, we are commissioned for ministry. Matthew 28, the book of Matthew ends with what we call the Great Commission. And it's in Matthew 28, verse 18, we read this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is a word in this great commission that is often misunderstood, and it's at the beginning of verse 19, when Jesus says, go. Many times we understand it as we have to leave what we're doing or who we are or or where we're living. And we have to go someplace to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples of all nations. But this word go is actually a passive participle, which means a more literal translation is in your going, not go, but in your going, make disciples of all the nations. And so some people are called to be missionaries and go away overseas. We'll hear from some next week. Some are called to be vocational ministers. But all of us are called in our going to make disciples of all nations. And so where in God's providence does he already have you going? Is is work a place of ministry for you? Where does God have you? Where does he have your kids on sports teams? Where do you play? Where do you go to eat on a reoccurring timetable? That is your going. That is where God has you. God has providentially put you in the neighborhood that you live in. And so in your going, we are called to make disciples of all the nations. And one of the other really neat things about this Great Commission is that it is a co-mission. We do not go alone, but Christ goes with us. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so as we minister to the people around us. As we minister in our going, we do not go alone. Christ goes with us. Now, I have heard some make the argument that this great commission was only given to the disciples. Therefore, only vocational ministers are supposed to be ministering the mystery of the gospel. Paul writes to the the Corinthians, and he says this. He said, therefore, if anyone, and anyone means everyone that this statement applies to. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us, to himself, and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, entrusting to all who are in Christ, all who have been reconciled to God, this ministry is entrusted to you, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, representatives for Christ, spokesmen and women for Christ, God making his appeal through us. This great commission is not just for disciples. 
It's not just for the professional Christians. This is for all who are in Christ. I once made the mistake in seminary thinking that I don't, I'm not called to do ministry in my going. I may have shared this story with you. I can't remember what I share and what I don't share, but I was, when I was in seminary, I was working at a golf shop just down the road because I wanted free golf and I wanted a little bit extra spending money. And so I was walk, working in this golf shop and I was taking tea times and cooking hamburgers and selling stuff. I know nothing about golf. Don't ask me, but that's where I was working. And I remember there was one rainy day, and on rainy days, it's very slow. And it was only me and the golf pro manager that was there. And I still remember him sitting in his little office, looking out as he was shining his shoes or something. I can't remember exactly. I remember him very intentionally and tenderly and inquisitively asking me, does your faith offer you peace? Does your faith offer you peace? To which I responded, yes. And then I walked away. (laughs) And I walked away because I wasn't there to do ministry. I thought I went to seminary to be prepared to go do ministry. But you see, it was in my going that I was called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I am in Christ. Because I've been reconciled to God through Christ. And so I've become an ambassador of Christ. Let me give you a positive example of this. There's a story of a lawyer in St. Louis who was doing business with a Christian businessman. And when, when 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 their dealings were done... The businessman said to the lawyer, he said, I have a question for you, but I've often been afraid to ask it. And the lawyer responded, okay, what is your question? And he said, I've wondered why you are not a Christian. And the lawyer hung his head and he responded saying, I know enough about the Bible that the Bible says no drunkard shall enter the kingdom of God. And you know, that is my vice. The businessman responded saying, you know what? You are avoiding my question. And the lawyer responded, well, truthfully, I can't recall anyone, not a minister, not not a regular churchgoer, anyone ever explaining how to become a Christian. He didn't need an apostle. He didn't need a pastor, anyone to explain how to become a Christian. At that, the client picked up his Bible and walked through and shared with him that Christ has died for drunkards. And he sat and he repented of his sin and he trusted in Christ for his salvation. That lawyer's name is C.I. Schofield, who later edited the reference Bible that bears his name. You see, God did not make his appeal through a pulpit. He made his appeal through a client, a client that understood his ministry was in all of his going. And so God may call you to be a foreign missionary. God may call you to go door to door and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what I do know is that if you trust in Christ, if you are in Christ, God has called you to be a minister in your going, wherever you go, and to share the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the commission for a ministry is to all of us. And it may look a little bit different for Paul and for me and for you, But God has commissioned all of us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I remember a quote from one of the pastor's conference I went to that was very helpful in this matter. Because I know some of you are very shy and timid about sharing. Actually, I think all of us probably are about sharing our faith with other people. And and the pastor got up and he said, you know, so-and-so down the road 
so-and-so pastor down the road, he can share the gospel better than me, but he cannot share a better gospel. You know, as you go and you communicate in your fumbled words, as you mess through it, Jesus is with you. And though some may be able to share the gospel better than you, they cannot share a better gospel. And so we are called to be ministers of God. Now, what is the cost for ministry? What, what should we expect in ministry? Well, again, in verse 23, Paul lays out that he has been called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 24, he gives us one of the most confusing verses Paul ever writes. He says this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, the most confusing part of this verse is when Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And so the question is, what does it mean? Well, before we get to what does that mean, we need to clearly say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that in Christ's affliction at the cross that it was somehow lacking and that we need to add to the cross. We need to add our suffering to the cross to accomplish our salvation. Clearly, that's not what it means because the entire letter of Colossians written by Paul was written to let people know that you can add nothing to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That you cannot add these Sabbaths, these new moon festivals. You cannot add, add these rituals to somehow perfect your salvation. That your salvation is full and complete. That Christ is a superior Savior, but he is also a sufficient Savior. And so what does it mean when Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? This was a very cool study for me. If you look over in the, in, in the book of Acts, you can see how Paul's afflictions might be tied to Christ's afflictions. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, you can follow along on the screen. Saul, it says, who later becomes Paul, who wrote the book of Colossians. Saul was ravaging the church. The church, okay? And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now fast forward a few verses to Acts 9, verse 1. We read this as continuing. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so let me ask you this question. I actually want a response. Who is Paul afflicting? Who is Paul imprisoning? Who is Paul breathing murderous threats to? Who is it? What's it say here? To Christians, right? To the church, right? To the disciples. That's who he is persecuting. Well, you continue on in the very next verse. Verse 3, we read, Now as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the disciples? Why are you persecuting Christians? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that amazing? Paul, who probably never met Jesus during his earthly ministry, is persecuting the church, persecuting Christians, persecuting the people of God. And when Jesus comes, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? What we see here 
what we were reminded of is the unity between Christ and his church. We studied a few weeks ago and we saw that Christ says that he is the head of the body, the church. And so we are one with Christ. The same blood that flows through the head flows through the hands and flows through the feet. And so one is afflicted, the other screams out. We are united to Jesus Christ. And as Christians are afflicted, Christ himself is afflicted. And so wherever you go to do the ministry that God has called you in your going, Jesus not only goes with you, but he is afflicted with you and he suffers with you. Now, in this passage in Colossians chapter 1, Paul not only demonstrates that Christ suffers with us, but he also demonstrates how we should suffer. He says here in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice. I rejoice. Not I'm okay with it or I get through it, but I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In another letter elsewhere, Paul actually recounts for us how he has suffered for the church. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 40 lashes was said to kill a man, and so they would give him 39, and they did it five times by his own people, the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift. See, I mean, at what point are you like, come on, God, seriously? At what time are you like, you know what? Maybe this isn't what I should be doing. It goes on. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, ministry comes at great cost. Ministry comes with affliction. And then this is just some of Paul's afflictions. And yet Paul says to the church, I rejoice. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. How can Paul rejoice in his suffering? How can you and I rejoice in our suffering? There are there are many answers, but let me just give you the one that's right here. Look again in verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And listen closely. For the sake of his body, that is the church. When we suffer in ministry, when we suffer for Christ's church, we suffer for Christ himself. We can rejoice as we suffer for Christ's church because remember what Ephesians 5 says, that Christ's church is the cherished bride of Christ. That he loves her so much that he laid down his life for her. And we have the opportunity to be counted worthy to suffer for the bride of Jesus Christ. And so this leads to two questions, and I have several illustrations that I think will help us unpack this. The first question is this, how, not if, but how has God called you to suffer for the church? How has God called you to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? And secondly, do you rejoice in those sufferings? 
I have a couple illustrations that I think will help explain what this might look like. I know that none of us are probably put in prison. None of us will probably be beaten for our Christianity. But how might we be afflicted for our faith, for serving the church? Several months ago, I remember standing out in the atrium and a man came up and he said, you know what, I I don't mind serving in the nursery, but I sure hate missing church. I sure hate missing this sermon, which, by the way, is a great answer. He said, I miss miss missing the, the sermon. Serving in children's church is a way to love Christ's church, but it also comes with suffering. You have to suffer the loss of being in the worship service. You suffer the loss of seeing your friends. You suffer the loss of singing together corporately as we glorify and enjoy God. You suffer the loss of a moment of sanity, right? And yet to that person, I would now say, you can look into the child's eyes, the one who is screaming, the one who is disobeying, the one that is running around. You can look into their beady little eyes and say, you are Christ's church. You are the bride of Christ. You are his cherished possession. He laid down his life for you. And it is a great joy that I am counted worthy to do the same. That's one way people suffer for his church. How are you called to suffer for his church? Do you do it joyfully? You know, Many of us show up here at, at 925, 930, 935. There is a whole slew of people that start getting here two hours before the service to set up the sound system, to put out the coffee, to practice, to pray. These are people who have, who have decided to suffer for the sake of Christ's church, to suffer the loss of maybe a, a nice family breakfast, to suffer the loss of extra sleep. And so you see, there are many ways that we can suffer for Christ's bride joyfully, knowing we are doing this for Christ's church. We are doing this for the bride of Christ, the cherished bride of Christ. Maybe you're here and you suffer for Christ's church. You serve in many ways, but you don't do so rejoicingly. You don't do it joyfully. You know, I think of of many of us who understand that we are called to suffer our finances, They were called to give a tithe of our income to the church. And we are suffering off many things, right? We're suffering off that family vacation or a bigger and better car because we are being obedient to what God has called us to do. But when you give that, you give it begrudgingly. I do. I say, man, look at this. Look what I could do for me with this. Here you go, God, right? All right, this is yours. You tell me to do it. What does scripture say? God loves a what type of giver? A cheerful giver. How can we rejoice when we suffer the loss of money to Christ's church? We know that we are loving the bride of Jesus Christ, whom he loves and suffered for. And so how are you called to suffer for Christ's church joyfully? So all of us who are in Christ have been commissioned to be ministers of this glorious gospel. All of us are called in ministry to suffer and have affliction for the sake of Christ's church. And I pray that we would do it well, rejoicingly. Next, let's look at the content of ministry. And we'll try to speed up here. 
Let's see how I can speed up. All right, verse 25. The commission for ministry we see, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, the content of Paul's ministry. To make the word of God fully known. And this is what he means. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Let's pause there. Paul is telling them that the content of his ministry is a mystery that has been hidden for ages upon ages, but now has been revealed. You see, in the Colossian church, there are these false teachers coming in saying, I have this mysterious things you can do, these special, these special worship services. You can worship angels. You can do these special festivals. And it's kind of mysterious, but it brings you closer to God. And Paul says, no, the mystery is out. The mystery is done. The mystery has been revealed. It is an open mystery. It is a revealed mystery. You see, in the Old Testament, things were pretty mysterious. They had a sacrificial system, right, in which they brought a pure, unblemished animal to be sacrificed as an atonement for their sin. Now, the problem with that is that an animal cannot atone for a person's sin. It can only make them clean externally, ceremonially. But it pointed forward to a glorious day when there become another sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a final sacrifice, a spotless sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who would die on our behalf to cleanse us not only externally, not only ceremonially, but from the inside out. But the sacrificial system was a shadow. It was a glimpse. It was pointing to the glorious gospel. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie National Treasure, but at the end of the movie, they come into this great cave and they walk in and it's dim. And they see some of the treasures and some of the riches there. And they're thinking, wow, this is really cool. And then, and then the guy grabs a torch. And I, I can't remember exactly, but he, he lights something and, and the fire travels and it lights up this huge cavern of all of these riches. This is a picture of the mystery being revealed. The Old Testament is like a dimly furnished room that has all the components, all the beauty, all the glory of the gospel. But when the New Testament is written, the light is switched on and we see it clearly. And so what is this mystery that has finally been revealed? Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the Old Testament, the special presence of God existed in the tabernacle and the temple and the Holy of Holies. And yet God said he was going to bless all nations. And so there was this problem. How is God going to bless all nations? If he's, if he's located in this special temple in, in Israel and Jerusalem, how, how can he bless everyone? But the mystery has been revealed. The God who dwelt in the Holy of Holies now dwells in the chief of sinners. He now dwells in his church throughout every nation and throughout all of history. We are the temple of the living God. This is such an amazing thought. Christ in us. Remember where we have come through in this passage. We have studied the preeminence of Christ. That Christ is preeminent over all of creation. That he created every single thing that you see. That he he sustains everything you see. That all of creation is to glorify him. We've seen that Christ is preeminent over the church, that he created the church, that he has sustained it through the, through the decades, through the centuries, through the millenniums. 
and that he is the goal and the purpose of the church. We saw that Christ is preeminent over redemption, that he has saved us, that he's rescued us, that he's a sufficient savior, that he is a superior savior. And that Christ that is preeminent over all these things, that Christ dwells in you, dwells in me. What a astounding thought. Through his Holy Spirit, he dwells in us individually, but collectively as his church. And we now are the temple of the living God. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. As you struggle with sin, as you struggle to remember God's love for you, as you struggle to do ministry in a very awkward and challenging way, What is your hope? It's not you. It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. All right, let me end with this. The culmination of ministry. Verse 28. Him we proclaim. Christ is the content of his ministry. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So many times we look out, if you've been around Christianity for a while, and we think the goal of Christianity is to bring someone to faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul tells us that is not the goal. The conclusion of it is to present everyone mature and complete in Christ to Christ. And so you look at the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples, not converts. Go make disciples of all nations. And so we are called to minister to one another this shatters our individualistic view of Christianity, doesn't it? That we can sit alone in the woods with the Bible and Jesus, and that's all I need for my whole life. And yet, what God tells us here is that person does not become mature. They do not become complete. In college, I had a study buddy. His name was Tim, and uh, Tim Allen, not the one you're thinking of, but Tim Allen. And I remember we started out in electrical engineering together, and we were in a lot of classes together. One day I was headed across the quad and he's like, hey, Dan, where are you going? I said, I'm going to change my major. And he goes, to what? And I go, to mechanical engineering. You want to go change your major too? And he goes, sure. So we went together and we changed our major to to mechanical engineering. And so Tim and I were in a lot of classes together. And as a test would approach, Tim and I would get together to study, right? We get together and what would happen is that we would mature ourselves in the subject matter. I would say, Tim, make sure you know this. And he goes, we got to know that. I said, yeah, he said we have to know that. And then Tim would explain to me all the things that I didn't understand. And so together we are able to mature one another in such a way that we were ready for the test. If you are a Lone Ranger Christian, if you are a solo Christian, if you are out on your own, you probably don't understand the ministry that God has called you to. You know, I have a lot of maturing to do. And so as I minister to you, would you minister to me? Look at what Paul says. He says, as he ministers, what he's doing is that he is teaching and warning with all wisdom. As you're here at Jacob's Well, you're not here just to grow yourself. You're here to minister to one another, that we might present one another mature in Christ. And so who has been commissioned for ministry? All that are in Christ. What is the cost of ministry? Affliction and suffering. Rejoicingly. 
What is the content of ministry? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the mystery revealed, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And what is the culmination of ministry? Presenting one another mature in Christ to Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, this call to ministry for all who are in Christ, for all who are reconciled, is a high and glorious and impossible calling. And I thank you that we do not go alone, God, but that you go with us, Lord. Lord, I pray you would challenge us to see how you might be calling us to suffer and be afflicted for the church, God. We know that it's not as vast or as grand as many of the things Paul went through, Lord, but it's significant to you, God, and it's worship to you, Lord, as we serve in such a way that we say we are serving the bride of Christ. Change our hearts, grow our hearts, develop our hearts, mature our hearts, help us to mature one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.